There we go. Can you hear me? Excellent. Uh, so in your handbook, if you have a little look through, you should find there is a page, I think, does it say Monday evening, Monday night? And it says, thank you very much. Yeah. And it says Genesis 37, which gives you a clue as to what we're looking at this evening. Um, what we're going to be doing throughout the evenings this week is looking at a story that you may well be pretty familiar with in the Bible, and that's the story of Joseph. But we're going to dive deep into the story of Joseph, and I hope that we will both, I think you're going to see things perhaps you've never seen before. Uh, I hope maybe you've heard some of the things we're going to talk about before, but you'll see them in a, a new way, in a clearer way. Most of all, I'm hoping and praying that we're going to see Jesus together in the pages of these chapters in Genesis, because that's who it's really all about. So if you can open up your Bible to Genesis 37, and uh, what we'll do, we're not going to read it all up front, but I'm going to read it through as we go. So keep that open in front of you. And then if you want to take notes, you can do that in your little book there as well. Okay, so this is the first evening together. Hopefully we've been getting to know each other a little bit so far. I've pretty certain that nobody knows everybody. Does that make sense? As I've thought about everybody that's here in the room, there is nobody here that before this camp knew everybody. And maybe you're here this evening looking around at some strange faces and you're wondering, how did I end up here? Uh, hopefully you're not wondering, where am I? As if you're really lost, but how did I end up here? Perhaps it's not just being on this camp that puzzles you. Perhaps you wonder how your life in general has ended up where it is right now or where it's been over the last few years. Perhaps things have happened to you that you never could have foreseen. Maybe some really good things and maybe some bad things. Maybe things you're grateful for and also some things that have made you weep. Sometimes our lives can seem completely out of our control. Whether they're going well or not, they seem out of our control. So much happens that we don't have control over. And even when we do have some control, maybe I should just speak for me in this, sometimes we're the ones that mess things up the most. I know when I'm most in control of my life, often I make the biggest messes. And I think perhaps you might find you're the same. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is there anyone who is ultimately in charge and in control of our lives? Is there someone somewhere that we can trust to work all things, even the bumpy things in our life, for good. Someone we can trust to deal with the bad things that happen to us and even with the bad things we do to ourselves and we do to other people. The answer we're going to find, and maybe some of you know it already, the answer we're going to find this week in the story of Joseph is that there is indeed someone who is in control. The best possible person that you would ever want in control of your life. God is in complete control. And he has a wonderful plan for every Christian life. And actually the title I gave to this evening's message is A Wonderful Plan for Your Life. But I don't mean that in the really simplistic way that some people might take it. The story of Joseph is a messy story. And the story of our lives day to day is, is a messy story as well. It's full of highs and lows, of joy and suffering. And so God being in control and working all things for our good doesn't mean that our lives will always go smoothly, that we'll always stay healthy, that we will always be comfy. No, in fact, it's nothing so mundane. 
God's plan is bigger and better than that. And that's what we're going to get a taste for in the story of Joseph this week. We're going to get a taste for the fact that when God is in control of our lives, working all things for our good, he will take us places we never dreamed or imagined we would go. He'll take us to some hard places. Hopefully not on this camp. Hopefully this camp is pretty, pretty easy going. But, but in our lives, he'll take us to some hard places. But his purposes are always good and always best in the end. That's what we're going to get a taste of. We're also going to get a taste, as I said earlier, a big taste of Jesus because this story is ultimately about him. So there we go. That's my sales pitch for why I would love you to turn up every evening. You kind of have to, but why I hope you'll turn up actually excited and anticipating what we're going to see in Genesis together. So let's dive in. The story begins with one seriously messy family. And if you think your family's messy, you haven't met these guys. Uh, let, let's meet them. We're going to meet them one by one. If you've got Genesis 37 open, have a look at verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob, it says. Uh, that means this is Jacob's family. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhat and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So here's our first family member, kind of the star of the show. It's Joseph. He is the 11th of 12 brothers. He's a shepherd and he's just 17 years old. So he's, he's a, some of you guys I know are 17, same, old, same age as you. His brothers are grown up, but Joseph's still kind of a boy. And as the younger brother, it's his job to help out in the fields, to do the menial tasks, to serve his older brothers in their work. Now, in Old Testament stories like this one, often the first thing you hear about a particular character says something important about them. It's sort of telling you a little bit about this person. The first thing we're told here about Joseph is that he brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. Now, I don't, I don't know for sure whether this is telling us just that his brothers were really badly behaving. And that's, that's quite possible because as we're going to find out, they weren't the best of brothers. But it might be that Joseph's up to no good here as well. It might be that Joseph is bringing a bad report, giving an exaggerated story to his dad, telling tales on his brothers. So a little taste maybe of what Joseph is like at this stage. So there's Joseph. Next we have Jacob. Okay, he's dad or whatever they called their dad back then. Jo now, Jacob is far from being the model father in this story. Have a look at verse three. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colours. Who here has seen something of the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? And it's, yeah. So, and a big, big part of that, isn't it, is the coat. And the coat's kind of cool, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure you'd wear it out on the streets, but Joseph thought it was cool. And here's the thing about that robe. Jacob made it for just one of his sons because Jacob, as a not very good father, had a favourite son. And that's not a good thing. Uh, Jacob, if you know anything about his story of growing up, he saw how destructive it was for fathers to have favourite sons. He had this with his own brother. He saw how destructive it was, but now he's guilty of favouritism as well. He loves Joseph more than his other sons. That's not a good thing for a parent. And worse still, Jacob makes sure that his other sons know about it. Imagine this. So he's making this coat so that all the other sons will know, oh, our dad doesn't love us as much as he loves Joseph. It's a bit like your family maybe 
your parents giving you a badge that says, say, you know, uh, just you, you've got brothers and sisters, but gives you a badge that says, favourite child or prince of the family, something like that. So there's your badge and you wear it with honour and, uh, and your brothers and sisters see it. And then we have the brothers themselves. The word brother is used 21 times in this chapter. That's a lot, but there's not much brotherly love to be found in this chapter. Verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So just as passionately as Jacob loves Joseph, Joseph's brothers hate him with a passion. And according to verse four, they hate him so much that they can't even bring themselves to say hello to him. And as we soon see, they hate him enough to plot to kill him. So things are not looking good. Now, what I haven't told you yet is this family is the family that God has chosen to bring about his great rescue plan in the world. So God has chosen this family out of all the other families. And he said, through you, I'm going to make a way for people down the ages of history to be rescued and saved and brought back into a relationship with me. That's this family. And they're just about ready to self-destruct. This doesn't look good. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is God in all of this? Where is God? He's not mentioned in these opening verses. In fact, he's not mentioned by name anywhere in this chapter. Remember, this is the Bible. It's supposed to be about God, isn't it? But he's not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. And yet, if we look a little closer, we can start to see his fingerprints are all over what's occurring. In fact, I think the writer of Genesis, he deliberately doesn't mention God's name because he wants us, the readers, to lean in and look for him. I don't know if any of you like watching um, uh, like mystery movies, um, spies, that kind of thing, uh, detectives. Maybe you like reading a book, some kind of murder mystery, and you like leaning in, looking for clues. This chapter is inviting us to lean in and look for clues. Where is God? What is he doing? What's he up to? We may not be able to see his name, but we can trace his hand here. And as we look closer, we discover that he is actually present everywhere. And he's at work in absolutely everything going on here. The life of Joseph is one long, continuous display of something we call God's providence. Anyone heard that word before? Providence? God's providence? Few people? Don't worry if you haven't. Here's one helpful definition of what this word means. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful word. Its meaning is amazing. Providence refers to God's... We should have it up on the screen, actually, Isaac. Did we get that one? Uh, yep. Oh, lovely. Providence refers to God's good government of our lives. We, and that includes us, are not the victims of luck, fate, or karma. Rather, God has mapped out our path from before time began. He is active in the circumstances, surprises, and choices of our lives and is all the time leading us towards his purpose. That's God's providence, and, and God's providence is evident everywhere through this chapter that we're looking at now. Just as it's evident everywhere in our lives day to day as well. We might not see it, we often overlook it, but God is at work in our lives, yours and mine. The first and most obvious place we see it here is in the sending of Joseph's dreams. So if you're writing down a little bullet points here, you could just write down, right, here come, this is the, the dreams. The dreams are important. The first place we see God at work. Have a look at verse five. Now Joseph had a dream 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Here's what Joseph's dreams are doing, apart from upsetting his brothers. Joseph's dreams are revealing that God is indeed present and at work. God is not silent here. He is speaking and he is promising. Now, right now, the brothers, they don't like what God is saying through Joseph's dreams. They don't like God's word. And maybe they don't like it in some ways because they struggle with their younger brother, Joseph. But they don't like what God is saying. But one day, these dreams are going to come true. And it's going to be a long wait for them. But for us, it's not going to be a long wait. It's uh, going to be, Tom, what night's it going to be? Friday. Is it Friday? Or is it? Oh, no, it's, it could be. Yeah. Oh, it's every night. It's every night. <laughs> every night's the night when your dreams will come true. We're going to see it unfold just over a few nights. God is going to appoint Joseph to rescue them and rule over them. But he's giving these dreams ahead of time so that when it happens, they will know God has a wonderful plan for our lives and he's mapped it out from long, long ago. Though they can't see it right now because they're so consumed with bitterness, one day when Joseph's dreams are fulfilled, they'll understand that not a single circumstance of their lives falls out of God's good and sovereign saving plans. And that, when that day comes, they will be so glad. In the meantime, though, things aren't looking so good. So if you want to write down a little, a little point of what's happening in the story, Joseph's errand. Here's where we come next. Joseph's errand, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Uh, now, many of you are teenagers or almost there, almost teenagers. Just imagine if your parents sent you out on a multi-day, 50-mile journey alone on foot, Think about all the unknowns that would await you on that journey. Think about all the unknowns that would have awaited Joseph, I guess, living in an even more dangerous world. Will he be robbed or will he get lost? Will his food and water last? Will he be able to find his brothers? Will he ever come home? There, there are so many things that could go wrong here in this story. 
And in fact, it starts to go wrong pretty quickly because when Joseph travels the 50 miles and gets to the place where his brothers are meant to be, he finds they've moved on. And there's no mobile phone to call them on. There's no Google Maps to track their location. To find them now is near impossible. But for a second time, we're going to see God's providential hand at work because it just so happens that as Joseph wanders in the field of Shechem, without a hope of finding his brothers, he meets a stranger. And not only does this man actually approach Joseph to ask him what he's looking for, so the man starts the conversation, what, what are you looking for? Tell me, who, who are you after? But by a one in a million chance, it turns out that he can tell Joseph exactly where his brothers have gone, all because he just so happened to overhear the brothers say they were moving on several miles down the road to a place called Dothan. Just imagine for a minute how differently things would have turned out if this stranger wasn't there, if he hadn't overheard the brothers' conversation. Joseph might well have wandered aimlessly around for a time and then turned back for home. He would never, a bit of a spoiler here, he would never end up in Egypt to save his family from a famine that's going to come. And then if he didn't save them from the famine, they would never have any descendants. There would be no Jesus. There'd be no G2 camp. There would be no Christians here this evening. We're only here this week. And I, you know, I said earlier on, you wonder, why, how did I get here? What's going on? Uh, here's one answer. We're only here this week because God sent this stranger to overhear a conversation to tell Joseph where he should go. This is no chance encounter. This is God's good providence at work. Okay, next little heading, a dastardly plot. A dastardly plot. I apologize if you can't spell dastardly, it is tricky. Verse 17, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, one of his brothers, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben, who we thought maybe Reuben was doing well, Reuben, you're, I guess you're named after this Reuben, and he's looking good, but he's about to go downhill. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then, this is an amazing detail, they sat down to eat. Clearly, the brothers are still bitter towards Joseph and his dreams. And so when they see him alone, traveling to find them, they concoct this dastardly plan. First to kill him, but then with the intervention of Reuben, to instead throw him into a pit and leave him there to slowly starve to death. And they're pretty ruthless, aren't they? They brutally assault their own brother. They're, they're like a bunch of wild animals setting upon him, tearing him apart, tearing at his flesh. And then, having thrown Joseph into the pit to starve to death, they sit at the top, around about, maybe they got their picnic blanket out, and they all sat down and enjoyed the sunshine to eat their lunch, within earshot of their brother's cries for help. 
as they confess later on in Genesis, uh, they, say, they say later in Genesis 42, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. It's a horrific scene. But as they eat their lunch, another option just so happens to prevent it, uh, present itself. Next little heading, sold into slavery. Sold into slavery. Verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. This is very merciful of uh, Judah here. He is our brother. We shouldn't really kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Of all the brothers, only one took pity on Joseph. That was Reuben. And when he comes back to rescue Joseph, he finds that Joseph is gone, that his brothers have sold him into slavery. And we're told, verse 29, he's distraught. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? He, he can't go home and tell his father what's happened. One more heading. The deceiver deceived. The deceiver deceived. You see, the brothers aren't out of cunning ideas yet. What are they going to do? What are they going to tell their father? Well, verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And so they leave their father to draw the obvious conclusion. Verse 33, his, his dad identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, that's to death, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Jacob is distraught. He's devastated. And just when it seems all hope is lost and the story is over, which would mean that G2 camp is over after, or before we've even had one night, just before that happens, the narrator jumps location to tell us that Joseph is very much alive and well and on his way, he's arrived safely in Egypt. It's like one of those big scene changes in a movie when suddenly you think it's all gone wrong and, and then you find out, well, it's kind of going wrong, but in a different way than I expected and it flits somewhere else. He is now in Egypt, the very place, as we're going to see on future evenings, where God always intended Joseph to be, to fulfill those dreams and rescue his family and preserve the promise of a future saviour. And all of that reminds us once again, as we start to wrap up this evening, of the real purpose and message of this story of Joseph. This story is all about God 
and about his good and sovereign purposes. It's all about his providence, that word we learned about earlier on. In the lives of sinful, messed up people, in the midst of a sinful, rebellious world, in the midst of our lives and people like us as well. Now tonight, I just want to finish off by showing you two ways that we have seen God's providence, two ways that we've seen that God is in control, that he's sovereign. We've seen, first of all, that God is sovereign. This should come up on the screen. God is sovereign over the smallest circumstances of our lives. Just think about all those little coincidences that, we, that were necessary to get Joseph to Egypt. We, we saw Jacob sending Joseph to check on his brothers. We saw the stranger Joseph met who could tell him where his brothers had gone. We saw the passing caravan of Ishmaelites who just so happened to turn up at the right moment so that Joseph could be taken down into Egypt. And many more things have happened. All these things needed to happen in exactly the right order at just the right time to get Joseph just where he needs to be to save his family. That's not chance. That's not coincidence. And this is God. And this is the same God who is at work today in even the smallest, hardest, uh, most confusing and difficult to understand details of our lives. God is at work in my life and your life to bring about his eternally good purposes for us. In fact, even our sin cannot thwart him, as we're going to hear about in future evenings. He's able to even turn our worst sins around for our good, to humble us and bring us to a place of bowing the knee before Jesus. So God is sovereign over the smallest circumstances of our lives. And secondly, God is sovereign in bringing about our rescue. This chapter has begun to lay out God's plan to rescue Jacob and his family from this coming famine. But it's also full of some teasers for a coming person. Someone who will one day come and secure our rescue from a fate far worse than famine. Anyone like watching teaser trailers for movies? You're kind of hyped about a movie that's coming out. And maybe they don't release a full trailer straight away, but they release a good teaser trailer just to get you more excited. I love a good teaser trailer. Here's what we're seeing here. Let's just think for a moment about some of the similarities and the differences between Joseph and Jesus. Here are some teaser trailers for Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus also came from an honoured position in his father's house. Jesus was the one before whom the real sun and moon and stars already bowed, and yet he was willing to set aside his royal robes to actually be demoted and clothed in human flesh and become like us as he set out to find us. Here's another similarity. Like Joseph's dad, God the Father sent his most beloved son into the world to search for his wayward children. Jesus, like Joseph, was condemned by his brothers. Like Joseph, Jesus was sold for a small handful of silver. Like Joseph, he was condemned to death. But here's some differences. Unlike Joseph, Jesus didn't have an older brother like Reuben to step in and lessen the penalty. Jesus willingly surrendered himself into the hands of wicked men who, first of all, tore his clothes from him and then they brutally beat him and they didn't stop there. Then they killed him. And finally, while Jacob responded in hopelessness and despair when he heard that his son had died or he thought that he died, God the Father did not despair at the death of his son. 
He didn't lose hope or weep for he knew that his son, Jesus' death, was not a devastating loss, but the moment of greatest victory. That the blood-stained cross on which his son was crucified was going to become this new doorway through which millions of people could be saved from death and brought back into God's family forever. We here this evening, all of us, we are just as as much in need of rescuing as Joseph's brothers were. We're just as messed up and proud and sometimes even treacherous as they were. But the story of Joseph is here to remind us that God is at work in our lives. He's been at work all throughout human history, even on the most difficult and seemingly hopeless of days, so that you and I could be here this week on G2 Camp and have an opportunity to hear and place our hope in Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There's no rescue like the one that God has provided for us in him. And that's what we get to explore and enjoy and revel in this week together, wherever our lives might be at right now. I and all of the leaders here on camp are so glad that you're here with us. We are so glad you're here. You are not here by chance. You are here because God wants to transform your life or go on transforming your life through his life-changing message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life-changing message for which you have called us here this week to hear and explore and enjoy together. Oh Lord, we thank you that our lives, none of them, are insignificant. Lord, none of our lives are out of anybody's control. They are under your good control, Lord. Lord, you rule and reign over all things. And we thank you that you promise that all who put their trust in you, Lord, you work all things together for our good, as we just got a little bit of a taste for in the story of Joseph so far. Father, we pray, even as we go to bed tonight and reflect on these things, may it do good to our souls, Lord. May it encourage our hearts to think upon the fact that the one who reigns and rules over all things is none other than you, the the altogether good God who sent your son to die for us that we might be saved. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.